Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Now, in our last episode, we heard about the rise of offshore wind, how it has outperformed expectations and led to the development of floating turbines. These turbines can be placed in the deepest of waters, which really opens up the long-term potential of wind power generation. As we look out to that horizon, we're going to explore the environmental impact of floating wind power. To do that, we have Kian Conroy, Senior Manager at Principal Power, Pablo Nekachia, Lead Developer for Floating Offshore Wind at Vestas, Rebecca Williams, Director of COP26 for the Global Wind Energy Council, and we're bringing in Fugro's own Senior Marine Environmental Scientist, Theo Sideropoulos. Let's get straight in. Rebecca, what is your view on the role of floating wind in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and its role in reducing them? So if when we're considering the role of floating wind in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, what we're actually talking about is the role of offshore wind and the role of renewables at large in, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. By 2050, 75% of the world's uh, electricity, of the world's power system will be produced via renewable generation. So the, the huge, vast majority will be renewables, which is great for all of us here on this podcast. I think the other thing to focus in on is that historically, when we've talked about reduction of emissions, and you can see this in the UK context, we've talked about power sector decarbonisation. So we've talked about reducing emissions from electricity specifically. And, and that's right, because the first kind of rule of decarbonisation, if you want, is that you should be reducing emissions from electricity, because that's the way that you will reduce emissions from other sectors of the economy. And we need system-wide decarbonisation of our economy to meet the net zero challenge. We only have to look at transport to see how this works in practice. Renewably generated power used to charge electric vehicles, for example. But some sectors are harder to decarbonise than others, aren't they? There's obviously still a lot of discussions around how we decarbonise heat and buildings and industry. And so the decarbonisation pathway, the way we do that for those sectors, will rely to a certain extent on electrification, but it will also rely on different ways to produce energy because you need molecules really we should electrify as much as we can, but we will need other solutions. And this is where floating is really, really exciting because that this technology gives us the ability to produce green hydrogen at scale. Green hydrogen being the production of hydrogen from water and renewable energy, such as floating wind, and hydrogen itself would then be used in transport or industry. But that means we're not just looking at the power sector anymore. We're not just looking at electrification. We're looking at this whole package and really an economy-wide approach to decarbonisation through the combination of electrification, but then also through the provision of hydrogen. Because you can use hydrogen to heat things, you can use it to burn in industrial processes, 
and you can use it in other sectors uh, and, and turn it into other things for things like freight and airlines and, and aviation fuels, etc. So it's a really exciting proposition when we're looking at the other sectors of the economy, not just power. I don't want to be overly enthusiastic here, but this sounds like this is a bit of a panacea. It's, it's not just a solution for the electricity issues, but also for burning molecules, which we can't get around. Kian, what's your view? Am I overstating this? I think it is quite exciting. I think we're nearly at that point that we described where floating wind was 10 years ago. We were pushing, at one stage we were pushing and very soon we moved to pulling. But we, you know, we have these demo projects akin to what we saw in 2011. We're starting to see, we're doing a funded project by the UK government on hydrogen production on a floating platform to be deployed in Scotland. And again, that's that sort of going back to that demo so that when we start getting into the next decade, we start to see alternative markets sort of pop up to support the business case and to support that sort of move towards decarbonisation. So we'll have a scenario in, in 10 years time where we'll have an electricity market for floating wind and an alternative market for energy as well. And the two can be complementary or separate. And, and I think that's an exciting future that floating will bring. From the wind turbine perspective, I mean, we're across the industry gearing up for that and getting the turbines to be hydrogen ready. You mean ready to generate hydrogen at the turbine? What we're seeing is an opportunity to in, to integrate electrolyzers into the turbine technology so that you can manufacture hydrogen directly at the turbine. And that comes with, with benefits that where you're not exporting electrons, but you're actually exporting the molecules that we've been discussing. And the transport for that can be done using either existing existing pipelines or new pipelines. It can be collected on site. It can be centralized and shipped away, actually. good example is the ERM Dolphin project, which is looking at that exact idea that the, the electricity is converted straight into hydrogen at the point of generation. And, and going back to the, the synergies of the oil and gas sector, it's very much building on that oil and gas. You create the liquid, which then needs to be transported, or a fluid that needs to be transported back to shore. So it's, it's the riser technologies that, that's used in the oil and gas sectors is repurposed and across. So it's, it's, it's those synergies are there again. Yes, because we talked in the last episode about technology transfer and repurposing oil and gas infrastructure. But this would depend on the location. So what might fit for one market might be different for another. Existing oil and gas infrastructure exists in the North Sea, but doesn't exist everywhere else in the world. And not all oil and gas infrastructure is suitable for hydrogen. So you could have a solution for the East Coast of Scotland that would be very different to the West Coast of Scotland in terms of how the hydrogen is, is transported from its point of origin. So it's, it's not a universal solution, but it's one of those kind of tools in the arsenal that we would have, that we could start to look at tailoring the, the generation methods. And then the transport, it could be like we see with LNG vessels, that it's, it's transported in a bulk carrier rather than going into a pipeline, or it could go into a pipeline and back into the, the existing gas network. And it's, it, it's, that's kind of where we are. So the market is evolving and so sort of, we are, as I said, we are now where we were 10 years ago for onshore wind, but how we get onshore wind onto the grid or, on, or offshore wind onto the grid, it's, it's almost the same discussion now, but how we get hydrogen into the system and that that market is, changing all the time. That is actually something that we're going to explore in our next episode, where we will be examining one of the world's first offshore hydrogen production projects. 
But back to floating wind and something that we haven't got into yet, and that is the marine environment. Now, Theo is one of Fugro's marine scientists. Theo, you spend your days looking at the wonderful marine creatures that we impact by our activity. What does this mean for them? It sounds like an exciting opportunity. Even though there are limited environmental information available on the impact of these structures on the marine environment and associated ecosystems, we can assume that uh, they will provide a hard, hard substrate for small organisms to colonize and then these organisms are usually in the bottom of the food chain so they will provide food source for other commercially important fish species or even marine mammals. Also, in these areas where we are going to establish the floating wind turbines, if we establish these zones as no-take zones so no extractive activity can take place there, that will further amplify the, the biodiversity uh, and the ecosystem in general. That's not going to happen otherwise, is it? Nobody's going to put a line around a particular area in the ocean and say, don't go there. Leave those fish and crustaceans alone. And there are also uh, currently uh, new technologies coming up. So the so-called biohats from a company uh, called Ecosian. This, this artificial equipment provides fish nursery habitats for uh, small fish and algae to grow on and they will not be they would not be there if a floating wind turbine wasn't uh, installed in these areas but everything has to come uh, like everyone has to come in an agreement and uh, there are obviously environmental concerns but theoretically speaking it's a great opportunity for the environment what, what effects would you expect to see in the marine environment when, yeah. or what, have, what has been studied when, you know, a, national, a marine national park is set up and, and defined? What, what does that protection actually mean in terms of the ecosystem? That kind of protection means that no fishing, uh, usually there are different types of zones and protections offered. Uh, but in general, what we, in cases where fishing activity, for example, is prohibited, you would expect the local ecosystem to come back. This ecosystem might be free from uh, fishing gear, which is left there or accidentally uh, drops uh, in the water. There, there, is, uh, there will be less, uh, less noise so from ongoing activities. So potentially marine mammals that they were there and they are permanently displaced will return. It's a very complex system, but in general... Would you expect to see an increase in biodiversity, at least from what has been experienced in the establishment of, an, of a marine protected area? Yes, and there are uh, examples uh, from the UK, I think from the Isle of Arran, where a similar uh, uh, marine prote protected area was established. Uh, the ecosystems uh, came back, and this is what we would expect uh, even though, even before we establish a marine protected area, uh, there is thorough work happening. And you can probably guess how the marine ecosystem will behave. But uh, through constant monitoring, you can have more uh, firm results and more accurate results and uh, be highly confident. Rebecca, did you want to add something here? I do think if we come back to the policy perspective for a moment, 
we should recognise the unique contribution that marine renewables make in terms of tackling climate change. And I don't think that we should ever lose sight of that fundamental principle, because when we're talking about prioritisation of users and ensuring that we can protect biodiversity and protect the natural environment, you know, there's many studies that have shown the impact of climate change in terms of our oceans and on marine biodiversity. So we really need to, to make sure, I think, when we are looking at this prioritisation, that renewables are prioritised because of the reason that they, they contribute to the tackling of climate change and indeed are the key solution that we have in terms of tackling climate change. Now, I'm not for a minute suggesting that we should, you know, give the industry a, a free ride or that we we shouldn't take our responsibilities very seriously because of course we we all do and I think everyone that I know in this space wants to be a leader in terms of marine conservation and protection of the natural environment but I'm saying that when it comes down to the other industries that are using this space I think marine air planning should recognize the contribution that renewables are making to, to tackling climate change. I will ask Kian to respond to this but but I can see Pablo is ready to jump in. I think it's from from the policy making point of view. I think it's it's where floating offshore wind becomes quite attractive, in the sense that there's fewer conflicts with other sea users as we go further from from shore, and I think that's something that needs to be recognised and should be highlighted in order to deploy this technology in more markets or in different coasts. Yeah, I would echo what Pablo says. When we start to do screening exercises, and we've done that in a few places around the world, the competing users further from shore, shipping routes get thinner, you know, it becomes more amenable to, to deploy these. And then equally just following on from that, I suppose, building on Theo's point about the, the positive impact of, of floating, we can be proactive as well in stimulating the ecosystem. And we've started to take steps towards that. We deployed our first, uh, the, the biohuts that Theo referred to there, we, we've actually started to implement them into our floating platforms. So in 2019, we did a sort of a mock floating structure in the, in the French Mediterranean sector to simulate what a floating platform would look like without a turbine on it. But we incorporated biohuts to, to, to build those breeding grounds for fish stock in that region. And as we move towards deployment, we will have a commercial floating turbine which will incorporate biohuts actually incorporated into the structure itself to be that stimulus for the, the ecosystem as well. Theo has mentioned these bio huts before. Let's expand on this. What are they? Uh, Theo's going to keep me straight here. I, I think he's probably more, but it, it, if you were to look at it at a, at a layman's term, it looks like as you drive down a motorway, you'll see gabons. They're like cage structures with stones in them. And it looks like that. And what they do is they create an artificial breeding ground for the fish. So the fish will start to use the gaps in the rocks as a breeding ground. So when we have the scale of these structures, you might think it's counterintuitive to have a floating structure to be bolting rocks to it, but that's the nature of a buoyant structure that it can incorporate that weight. So it's not actually to the detriment of the platform to do this. So what we'll have is multiple, if I can call them gabons for that purpose, affixed to different parts of the floating structure in, in the water column and they'll become the breeding ground for the fish stock. And they also offer like different textures and crevices and holes where different species of uh, organisms can colonate and they provide shelter, protection and uh, as I said, they are a good food source for other species. Let's talk about that future. 
So much has been achieved and there is a great momentum here. But let's close out this discussion by really talking about the challenges that the floating wind industry faces. I think one of the main challenges for floating offshore wind is port infrastructure and keeping that port infrastructure up to speed with the development in size of the wind turbines because you can't assemble a wind turbine today's size or even of tomorrow's size on the on most of the existing key sites. So that that's a challenge that we need to, to face head on. That's not an easy one, is it? It kind of comes back to the point where we're making on policy ports or sort of national infrastructure. They're, 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 they're a key part of any economy is the port. It's not just for renewables. You know, we're all, as I say, we're all coastal, we're island nations. So the port is a key part of the infrastructure. And port owners and operators tend to think about their port in 20 year life cycles, not ones and two year life cycles. So for them to move from Victorian era ports as some of them might be to the fit for purpose, they need that confidence that they will have a business model that in 10 years, they'll still be doing port related activities for offshore wind. And that comes back to the vision that politicians will lay out to the sector. So it, it, it all comes back to, to that, not want to be like a broken record, but it comes back to that vision and policy. But just coming back to the points we were making before, I mean, you have to have you have to have the port relatively near to what to where you want to deploy. You know, that's the whole point of this. So, again, going back to the kind of political, com- well, Pablo, <laughs> Pablo's shaking his head slightly, relatively near. But the point is that for politicians, that then is an opportunity just talking about being in step with deployment and with what the port needs and with the politics of this situation. For politicians, a port is a chance to have more jobs in a local area. The UK has some great case studies of coastal communities, uh, which have been hugely regenerated by the fixed offshore wind story so far. And so I think politicians are really recognising that political opportunity in investing in port infrastructure. We're seeing that in the UK at the moment. We can all have a conversation about whether it's enough, whether it goes fast enough and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, I think politicians have um, have recognised that concept. And we're, we're seeing a kind of race to the top in terms of the, the ports around the, the kind of UK North Sea region now, I think, in, in terms of what their plans are and what they want to achieve. But we're also seeing that in many of the international markets that we're working in. So I guess it is a story of opportunity, of political opportunity, and also of commercial opportunity for ports. Uh, But I think Pablo was shaking his head because there is a lot of competition also between ports in a certain area. From a technical point of view, you you could conceive the idea of having a port that serves as a hub that, that that then deploys these units to a larger distance because the because at the end of the day floating turbines can be towed significant distances something else i think we need to consider is the maturation of the sector from a funding perspective kian how are things changing here at the start we were sort of fixed on subsidies and it was a crucial part that's not what we work towards now. It's policy for deployment. So how many units can we install? How many megawatts can we install in a year drives what we do, not the policy that we look to the taxpayer for. Fixed offshore wind doesn't receive any subsidy at this point now from the taxpayer or from the bill payer, I should say, rather than the taxpayer. And it's that. So when we talk about funding or feed-in tariffs, whatever, we just need, need, need to declare policy is really about giving the, the confidence that in 10 years time, you will still have a business 
deploying wind turbines or maintaining wind turbines. That's what the policy looks like, not that there's a subsidy attached to that. What we do recognize in, in, in floating wind, we're on the exact same journey as probably every other source of energy generation going back to coal, that you need a critical mass to make it cost effective. And that's what we're, that, that's what the sector looks for at the moment is, is that sort of lift up to get us going, you know, that once we get that kind of critical mass, then the inertia will carry us in terms of cost reduction. But without the initial subsidies, the business case doesn't work exactly. So that's that's what the policy in the short term looks like. There's a financial element to it. But long term, it's, it's all about just megawatts. How many megawatts a year do people want and foresee using? I completely, completely agree with, with what he's saying. I think when we look at other global markets as well, it's about the policy pieces that are kind of that surround the the, the floating offshore wind country. So, what does the consenting framework look like? Is that fit for purpose? How fast can it move? Does it have all the right stakeholders on board? And can you get a decision that kind of works for those stakeholders now rather than someone coming in in, in five years time and saying that they weren't consulted? Uh, similarly, grid, um, you know, we've, we've talked about hydrogen and the, the fact that that could be transported in a slightly different way. But if we're talking about electricity, we, we see across, across the world, across the globe, that electricity infrastructure, grid infrastructure, needs rapidly updating for the energy transition and for the digital world that we're all living in now. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get the volume of EVs that we need and get that kind of other demand side action and pull through uh, that we need to see uh, to incentivize more build out of renewables. So, you know, grid permitting. And then, as I mentioned at the start of my piece, in some specific markets, there are specific barriers that need addressing, such as any kind of priority dispatch for fossil fuels, which we just shouldn't be having in 2021. Why has anyone got that as part of their policy framework? So by that, you mean the economic distortions that result from some countries favouring, and in fact still prioritising, fossil fuels, which acts as a barrier to renewable generation. Now, now, we've already heard that renewable generation and floating wind can bring major benefits to the marine environment. But Theo, is data a challenge here? No, we don't have enough data, but we can uh, draw parallels from static wind uh, turbines offshore, and we can draw assumptions for that. But uh, overall, uh, if floating wind turbines are going to be deployed in the future uh, will require ongoing monitoring in order to collect more data and draw more safe assumptions and then take it from there I suppose because especially for the UK we have mapped most areas we know the sediments how they look like more or less we know the communities more or less that they live there and how the marine mammals move any migration routes that they follow. I think it's worth pointing out that from the public's point of view, the story that floating wind could enrich and enhance the marine environment is very powerful. And having the data that shows this would be very positive. Yes, it is a very positive element because we are talking probably about areas that uh, they're not so rich. Uh, these, these communities are not so rich. So theoretically speaking, yes, will create uh, a 3D structure providing a new habitat for uh, organisms to develop uh, and enrich these areas. 
so yes, from that aspect, yes, it's a very good thing. And also floating wind turbines, we consider them theoretically less invasive than the static ones because you don't disturb the sediments that much. Uh, you don't create, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't emit so much noise in the environment from excessive, excessive drilling or pile driving. So overall, I think it's an exciting uh, new development coming up. I think we have all heard here about the enormous potential that offshore floating wind offers in terms of reducing our carbon footprint, supporting new energy systems such as hydrogen, and, and enhancing the marine environment. Like any emerging industry, there are challenges to overcome, but it seems that the wind is blowing in the right direction. So thank you so much to our guests for joining us today. As always, and until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>